Dr. Carson, thank you for joining us on Theology Refresh. This is our podcast for pastors at Desiring God, and our theme today is the wrath of God. Uh, would you start us off with a general concept of the wrath of God that would help ground our thinking? It's important to begin by saying what it's not. It's not God losing his temper. It's the determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him, rebels against him, uh, calls him into question. Um, it, it includes will and choice, uh, but also emotion, and its result is judgment, condemnation, and death. Um, and, and thus it is tied in the first instance to a right understanding of the sheer holiness of God. Um, it is in some sense a secondary attribute in, in that um, wrath is not, you cannot speak of God is wrath the way you can speak of God is love. Uh, that is God's nature. God is love. But, but God is not wrath. Rather, he, he responds in wrath to rebellion against him. And this is, uh, h- however, complete a reaction, visceral and willed and all the rest. It is, in the first instance, a response to something external to himself, namely the created order that he has made in rebellion against him. So even more specifically, uh, the wrath of God is linked to human sin. It's linked to human sin, but the wrath of God is also uh, expressed against um, demonic powers, angelic mm. beings that have fallen and so mm. on. So it's, it's not just human. It is against all rebellion and all unrighteousness. But in the Bible, it is characteristically against um, a human rebellion. Mm. Uh, what key texts come to mind biblically when you think about the concept of God's wrath? Well, there are about 600 passages in the Old Testament that actually mention the wrath of God. And then there are others that don't actually use the word but speak of God as a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. Um, in the New Testament, I suppose the uh, most central passage is Romans 1.18 and following, um, wh- where the whole point of the exercise is that God's wrath rests on Jew and Gentile alike. We're all guilty. We're all under sin. Um, some of us have rebelled against the revelation of God in Scripture. Some of us have re- rebelled against the revelation of God even though we don't have Scripture. Um, but the result is the horrible description in Romans 3, 9 and following, a concatenation of biblical texts. Um, they do not know God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The way of God they have not known and so on, so on, so on. And all of that becomes from one eighteen to three nineteen. It becomes the setup for one of the most glorious pictures of the cross in all of Holy Scripture, the great um, atonement passage of Romans 3. In John 17, when Jesus is talking about the relationship he has with his Father from before the world began, there are, there's the mention of joy and of love. There's no mention there of, of wrath. You said a minute ago that it's kind of a, a secondary category or secondary to his nature. Would you expound on that a little bit? God responds to me in wrath because of my sin. God responds to me in love because of who he is. Um, If there is no sin, there is no wrath, there is no judgment. It's one of the reasons why 1 John 4 can say perfect love casts out um, 
wrath. It casts out judgment because because once there is no fear where, where there is no judgment. Once once the sin has been looked after, once it has been completely removed, and and we are living in the sinless perfection of a new heaven and a new earth, there will be no wrath toward us whatsoever. Um, so so in in that sense. God loves me not because I'm so lovable or because I'm so cute or intelligent or faithful or anything of that order. He, he loves me because he is love. But if he is wrathful toward me, it's not because he is wrath, but because I am guilty and sinful and rebellious and irreverent and blasphemous and unloving. And, and he responds out of his holiness uh, toward me in wrath. A common misconception seems to be that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Uh, take that apart for us. It's a very common view, even amongst Christians who um, should know better. Um, and one of the reasons, I suspect, is that um, the wrath of God is expressed uh, toward his covenant people in the Old Testament in very Uh, temporal material terms. So you're dealing with uh, cities being destroyed and going into slavery and and, and hunger and and, and that sort of thing. And then you come to the New Testament and Jesus says, turn the other cheek and love one another and and Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. So it's it's easy to paint it as if that's the way it works. As you move from the old covenant to the new, you move from um, the God of wrath to the God of love. But I think that's hugely mistaken. First of all, in the Old Testament, there are many, many, many passages that stress God's grace and his love. He has not treated us according to our deserts. As a father pities his children, so the Lord, the, the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Um, again and again and again, God's wrath is portrayed as being put off and being put off till the very last moment. Uh, he, he, God himself can portray himself in the book of Hosea as the jilted lover uh, the, 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 the almighty cookhold, the, the, the one who has been abused and hurt by, by those who rebelled against him. And always these promises of return, return from exile, return from judgment, if people will only uh, turn to him and cry to him for mercy, he, he brings about these transformations. Moreover, in the New Testament, um, the greatest judgment is hell itself. Jesus speaks about hell and introduces the theme with far more uh, descriptive metaphors and the like than anybody else in the New Testament. And, and that surely on, on any sort of serious scale of understanding is far, far, far more serious. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's terrifying. And it, it marks the justice of God in the most severe terms. So far from saying that as you move from the old covenant to the new covenant, you move from God of wrath to God of love. Rather, as you move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, you ratchet up both. That is, the wrath of God becomes clearer as you move from primarily temporal judgments to the judgment of eternal condemnation itself. But also the love of God becomes clearer. It's ratcheted up in intensity as you see this God not only calling his people but ultimately sending his own dear son to die and take my place on the cross and bear my sins in his own body on the tree. So that, that there's a ratcheting up of both and, and both themes barrel through the scripture until eventually they, they clash together in the cross itself. Mm. And, and thus the, the standard view of moving from wrath to love actually has a way of depreciating the cross. You only see the cross 
uh, in the right lens when you see how both themes are increasing in clarity and perspective until they meet in the cross itself. So for pastors and leaders who are listening, maybe one of the more common objections they'll receive uh, toward the central doctrines of the Christian faith are those specifically the wrath of God or those related to the wrath of God, doctrine of hell, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, any words of counsel for pastors as they encounter those objections and seek to bring the Christian faith into those uh, defensive kind of situations? Well, clearly it's possible to present the wrath of God in a way that is distorting and untrue and miserable. Or it's it's possible to present it in a way in which the preacher himself is full of wrath and mm. sounds condemning and mean-spirited and, and, and nasty. Um, and, and that has to be fought. I mean, we, ha- we have to weep over the city the way Jesus weeped over Jerusalem. The same Jesus who can utter the denunciations of, of Matthew 22 still ends up weeping over Jerusalem. And so that has to characterize us. That, that has to begin first. But having said that, the theme of the wrath of God is so much tied to other great structures of thought, especially to what is achieved on the cross, that you cannot duck it without eventually diminishing and distorting the gospel of God itself. And if people come to me and say, yes, but that cannot be accepted today, it's, it's too un-PC, it's, it just turns people off, then I can't help but remember what John 8.45 says. In Jesus' own day, we're told, um, he recognized that some people disbelieved because he spoke the truth. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. That's not even a concessive. That would be bad enough. Although I tell you the truth, you do not believe. But precisely it's causal. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. And there are some people in every generation, and sometimes almost entire generations, who are so offended by the truth that it's the truth that guarantees they will not believe. And then what are your options? Tell them lies? When, when you're told again and again and again that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and, and when you can see on any sort of a, a careful analysis that if you distort the wrath of God or diminish the wrath of God, you ultimately misunderstand the cross, then the price is far too high to pay. Whether people receive it or not, um, then you must preach the whole counsel of God. And in this case, to preach the whole counsel of God is actually warning people against the wrath to come while also announcing just how glorious the gospel of God is, how wonderful the love of the Savior is in that he meets this wrath. The same God who stands over against us in wrath because of our sin stands over against us in love because of who he is. And, and that becomes clearer yet when you see what the scriptures actually say about the wrath of God. Don't duck it. Just understand it well. Preach it ably, humbly, and with tears. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Would you close us in prayer for the pastors and leaders who have been listening to us? Merciful God, help us not to hide from your truth, but to understand it aright and to teach it and preach it faithfully. We do not want to pretend we are masters of your word, standing in judgment of it, but so mastered by it that we proclaim it faithfully. So we pray that you will give courage and clarity and compassion as those who listen to this broadcast actually teach the wrath of God 
in its rightful place in the canon and structure of truth so that the gospel of God may be the more clearly seen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.